This podcast is more of an informal chat with an old friend of Anne Rather's and mine, Chris Robertson. Since he left the organisation Revision, which he founded many years ago, he's been working in a lot of fascinating fields we wanted to know more about. So we sat down in the garden with occasional planes overhead and the dog at our feet to ask what he's been up to. So Chris, this idea about the importance of a cultural context when you're thinking about psychology, I guess that's very different from the way you were first trained in the Tavistock. Uh, well, I think it's an untenable position, that divide, that divorce. It was a good discipline to begin to really understand the inner fantasy, the inner world. But maybe it's um, it's split, isn't it? Um, it? I mean, it reflects our culture in a way that we live in an alienated culture, so possibly an alienated therapy is perfectly right for it. But if you're not taking that approach, what, what's the kind of approach behind... Your, what is your new website? Um, culture Crisis. .net. Um, so I'm, in a way, starting from the opposite side to say that all individual symptoms, uh, all, it's a strong statement, um, stem with the culture. And, the, you know, the family dysfunction is related to the culture. And the family culture is itself a subclass of the uh, subculture we live in or the bigger culture and so on. And um, if you live in an alienated, exploited culture um, that is a bit like the film you were showing us that um, says the only way to fulfill a void is to buy more things, um, then um, you're going to get the consequences of that. And no amount really of, of working on your inner fantasy or your inner parents, though that will help, but it's, um, you're still in the same culture. It's a bit like um, you know, taking a, uh, a patient, as you would say, out of a schizophrenic family and uh, sorting them and then sending them back in and, hey, you know, the change doesn't last. It's pretty obvious really, isn't it? So, so it's a kind of interactivity between one's yeah. environment and environment. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's the interdependence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the modern thinking, well, a lot of modern thinking, whether that's ecosystemic thinking or mm. modern physics or whatever you want to call it, everything is recognised as interdependent. Mm. And the approach of science to try and isolate things in order to understand them creates up a, an alienated way of thinking. You can't separate things out except in an extremely artificial way. When you say alienated, you know, I think of Marx talking about alienation, which... I just read a little bit about it recently and I found it really striking because it was such a s simple and obvious thought now looking at mm. I mean he was thinking I suppose in terms of people in factories who are treated like robots in mm. effect who have no say who have yeah. no sense of connection with the business or what they're making with the product, with their life. Their, their life is entirely outside the factory, and here they're just automatons. But it take it goes so much further than yeah. that. And he, I think Marx really meant something much further than that. When you're really 
alienated from your own sense of agency, whatever it, yeah. it is. Yeah. And uh, I guess all this talk now of rights, you know, however um, shouty it might sometimes be, is a way of trying to get back to that sense of agency, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And yet it becomes um, so abrasive, uh, can become so abrasive and so um, adversarial. Well, if I can interrupt yeah. the, uh, I mean, the problem with agency in our present culture is the focus is so much on the individual mm -hmm. that we, we've lost the web that we're part of. So if agency depends on the individual, we're back. It's like it's a short-circuited, the true nature, well... Then the nature of what I would think of is a sort of deep agency. Let's call it a deep agency, where you're you're able to come from a place in yourself that isn't to do with your ego. Mm -hmm. You're able to feel what the interdependence world is seeking you to do, what you're being called to do, what you're being invited to do. Um, so it's a sort of non-egoic agency that some people would call soul. Mm -hmm. um, and what would people who hate words like soul call it? Soup. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously. Uh, I was thinking of chicken soup for the soul. That was sort of, um, well, I think part of what I've tried to do is is take that word, reclaim that word to its sort of Greek origins mm -hmm. and religion has, um, Christian religion in particular, not the Buddhist religion, has sort of subsumed it mm -hmm. as if it belonged, but it doesn't. Sort of hijacked it. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it doesn't. So I think um, following James Hillman, I've tried to work with that being a, a current word that maybe its meaning is a bit mysterious because since we deconstruct its religious meaning, nobody quite knows what it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course, you have soul music. Yeah, yeah. you have. S there are a lot of things, and even advertising is unfortunately caught onto it now, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's lots of soul is in the adverts, which is a dangerous precedent because yeah. it's like hijacked again. It's, yeah, it's becoming a commodity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember there was this wonderful young musician who said that when he was young. Uh, he's a young American, who, he, not from any particularly, you know, rich background or anything, but just a kid. And he had this photograph he'd seen of a black family sitting outside their compound, their shantytown area. And he showed me the picture mm. when he was grown up. And I was so struck by this picture because it wasn't a beautifully composed, you mm. know, nothing... But there was something about it. Mm. And he said, he said, it's soulful. And mm. I said, yes, it is. Mm. And what he did was when he grew up and had his own band and his records, mm. recording stuff, he went to South Africa and he found the very spot. No kidding. Really? No. And he linked up with the people there. Right. And, and, and he did a wonderful piece of music with everybody, which then he gave us, you know. And he was so open to the world and mm. to everybody. It was just a, he was mm. just a lovely person. Yeah. And you could feel that he could see in that photograph yeah. something which he had, exactly. of course. Exactly, it catalyzed. 
it catalyzed some reconnection in him yeah. as a young white American yeah, linking with black so. South Africa. You know, yeah. there's no no barrier yeah. for him. No. It's beautiful. I think that it's too easy to say soul is sort of gender and racial um, free, but I don't think it is. I think, I think the, I mean, I think Jung was trying to understand, you know, what a sort of soul, the root, the blood soul, the, the roots of your tribal soul might be. And I think ancestors and recognizing your ancestry is an important aspect of connecting with soul. So the soul doesn't sit floating off somewhere, it's rooted. So that too is culturally connected? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And is there a... So, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you have um, people who I would consider dangerous, yeah. um, who are like the alt-right, who are very into their tribe, the, the kind of white tribe as opposed to the rest. There's, again, the splitting, and, and I, I react terrifically to what I see as tribalism. Mm. And I like to be not tribal wherever possible. But are you saying that at some level there is an... You know, I, I always think, you know, it's a one world, it's one human race. What is all this splitting and tribalism? Well, difference is important, isn't it? Difference um, and diversity or in the process of development difference does split um, it's inevitable um, but that differentiation is important it's a question of um, in terms of identity the identity politics is often based on threat and fear isn't it so that people solidarity comes out of fear and being threatened and then it's all about your, your what is other, what's being, what you're juxtaposing your identity with. Mm. Whereas, that, mm, well, you could maybe include that in, you'd have to work a little bit to think through how, in what way that would be soulful. Um, it wouldn't be obvious, because it, but I guess you can have a, uh, a, a soulful conflict. I'd have to, have to, <laughs> you have to work on that. I mean, I think um, conf some conflicts can be productive. They can bring people into deep passions. Um, but so often, if it's about destroying or denigrating the other, it's quite difficult to be in conflict in a really respectful and passionate way. Mm -hmm. So that feels like a. Yeah, it's a, a way it's not about defeating the other. Yeah. But about. Um, learning almost from somebody's difference or yeah. including then, yeah, sort of exactly. seeing and then including yeah. that difference. Yeah. Mm. And in the psychotherapy training organization I find a revision that whole idea of working with differences being, it's not simple, it's not, well actually in theory it's simple but in practice it needs a lot of work and mm. it's sort of 
quite early on we recognised that would be a very important thing to work with, if, you know, in terms of having difference in the training staff. So it's not sort of monochrome. Um, the people with different different trainings, different um, philosophies, different psychologies coming in and, and learning to work together. It seems a very, very important principle. Mm -hmm. That's very rare too because most psychological schools seem to do the opposite. They end up being very mm, to guard jealously their one true faith. Well, there is that, but I think there's also quite a lot of um, interdisciplinary or um, integration, so-called, but often actually it's more like an eclectic, so you have a, a lot of courses that offer you um, CBT and psychoanalysis, or uh, psychoanalysis and Rogerian, but there's such, um, I mean, there's no, there's no notion of transference in Rogerian theory, so how do you marry that? I think they basically they don't. They just concurrently run the trainings mm -hmm. and hope the students somehow work out <laughs> <laughs> how to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So there are there are eclectic trainings that might often call themselves integrative, but mm -hmm. they don't actually integrate. No, so mm -hmm. it's a huge challenge to really integrate. Mm -hmm. What's happening these days with your things happening in the woods? What's that all about? <laughs> well, um, in terms of culture change, um, three things, there's loads of things we could focus on, but three things, the th three R's, we're thinking about remorse, we're mm. thinking about, they're all complicit in what's happening in our culture. And I can feel the emotion in my voice as I, as I say that. Um, we're all complicit, so feeling into the grief of that complicity and connecting to remorse about that leads to the possibility of wanting to do something different. You know, whether that's whatever that is, it might be quite simple, it might be very profound. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is um, working with a storyteller. And a long time ago, quite a lot of um, in the eco deep thinking, there's this notion of we need a new story. And she said, no, no, it's not one story. We need new stories. It's not, there isn't one story that's going to fix it all. That's, that's a bit like a continuation of the old philosophy. So um, she brings in some very beautiful storytelling that sets people up into a somewhat altered state. Um, and then we, we go off on, on sort of mini solos into the woods. And there are encounters that people have, some hugely profound and deep, others very slight, but they're still little encounters. Um, and I've been doing it for a while now, and it never fails to amaze me. Sometimes, you know, very small little things can still have a big impact because they offer a sort of enchantment. So I would say that's the other cultural thing. We, yes, we have been enchanted, but we've, been, we've been, had a spell cast on us. Let's say the commodification spell, you know. Mm -hmm. So this is like a, um, a de-spelling and a re-enchantment that through in, these little encounters we can start to feel just like the silence in your wood here. There's a, and the, even, as, even that's as banal as the pigeons cooing, it's 
got a sort of its own enchantment. So that's, I think, and there's beauty in there as well. So that's part of this. So much when people retell their, not everybody gets to speak, but when people tell their stories, there's a sort of enchantment, especially if we can have a, a fire going or something. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Can you give an example of the kind of enchantment you or others have spoken about? A particular story? Mm. Um, um, well, the story that comes to mind for me, I'm not sure it was particular um, enchanting. It was more like, oh dear, <laughs> one of those encounters. So I was walking off and wondering what, you know, just trying to stay open to whatever. And then um, it's this very unusual flower I came across. And um, I sort of kneeled down to get to meet it and I sort of went very quickly into the perfume of the flower which was intoxicating in a sense that was the enchantment then I recognized that's so typical of me I hadn't looked at the form of the flower or um, I'd gone straight for the essence uh, that's like um, so I then had to backtrack and apologize to the flower and <laughs> go a bit more slowly but um, so I, a little story about me, but um, some people have, I would say, maybe not so much insightful, but more um, encounters that are strange, that uh, demand a dislocation of language. So I think that's part of the problem. With so, you know, trees don't speak Anglo-Saxon. Um, so um, the plant world needs a different language. And I was um, hearing a very nice um, interview recently with um, a woman who's written a novel about this world-class musician who gave up her, her career to, to um, be with birds. And uh, um, the author of this novel was saying, well, musicians are used to communicating without, without conceptual language. That's what they do. So to communicate with animals is quite easy for them. No, it's not a problem. This so. reminds me of, <laughs> on a slightly more banal level, Peter and I um, at the Adlerian Summer School we were at um, did a 10-minute, just a 10-minute walking meditation. We went off in two different directions. There's a place with 32 acres of land and Peter found one daisy in this huge green space and picked it and brought it as the thing he, you know, we were all asked to bring something yeah. that spoke to you. And he said, can you imagine in all these acres there was one daisy mm. and I brought it back. And then it was, I was the last to speak, so he was penultimate and I was the last. And I took my object that I'd picked up in my hands and took it over to him and over my hands and of course it was the other daisy the only other daisy Beautiful. <laughs> it was lovely yeah. <laughs> I'll just come to mind a, a more extraordinary enchantment so one of his little walks I was on in the wood um, and I was just coming out the wood and there was a white deer Mm. and that, about 
period of my life I was very into um, the Grail legend and so much about the white deer. And we had this extraordinary eye contact and then it just trotted quietly off. And that still was a magic moment. So I think actually we could, enchanting means some sort of magic happens that takes you out of your conceptual ego-orientated mind into another reality. I think that's the enchantment I was meaning. Of course, it's exactly the encounter which is described by David Fleming. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> in the book and in um, Stefan Harding's own experience, yes. yeah. encountering a deer and just breathing in its essence. Yeah. It's so different from just observing it objectively. Yeah. yeah. So what do you hope, I mean, again, coming down to earth rather, these events Good expression, are, that. <laughs> all right. But even without coming down to earth, what would you hope will come out of these sessions that will help people? Well, I think a little bit of magic can go a long way. Uh, you know, I think it's um, a bit like the catalyst you were talking about, Anuradha. Mm -hmm. It can just sort of start to edge all the present the uh, word of the moment is nudge, isn't it? But not so much nudge economics, nudge consciousness, just that little bit. Because um, I suppose, um, you know, there's so many elements around the work's being done around sustainability and ecological thinking and, you know, gift economics. There's a lot of very good. But the human mind is pretty central to all this and unless you can nudge in a deep way your your relational context shall I call it the way you relate the way you are attuned or one of your favorite words empathically orientated or not um, these are very core to human changes okay well I hope we can have another chat like this, Chris, because there's so much great stuff there. And let's co let's consider this chapter one or something. All right. Thank you both very much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you.